Well, good evening. We are continuing tonight in our series called The Final Week. And as Pastor Tim mentioned as we began, it's a series looking at the final week of Jesus's life. And since we took a couple weeks off for Missions Week, I want to get us caught back up. Or if you've missed that way, you're kind of caught up as to where we are at tonight. The the final week of Jesus's life, when you look at the four Gospels, actually takes up a third of the Gospels. A third of the Gospels is simply this last week of Jesus's life. And we looked at Sunday as Jesus has this entry into Jerusalem and he is worshipped and praised by the people as they wave palm branches and lay him down before Jesus as he comes in into the city of Jerusalem. We looked at Monday where Jesus this time doesn't just enter Jerusalem and leaves, but he goes into the temple area and he overturns the tables and he he cleanses the temple for what he finds there. And then he leaves back out of the town to Bethany where he stayed most likely each night during this week. And so today we're going to pick it up at Tuesday and we're actually going to look at an event that happened a little bit on Monday and then as well on Tuesday during this final week here of Jesus's life, leading up ultimately to Good Friday, where he died for our sins, and Sunday, where he rose again from the dead. One of the things that kind of comes on everyone's radar this time of year, it's April tomorrow, is spring cleaning, right? Spring cleaning. Now, I don't know about you. I may be one of the weird ones here um, who actually, I, I sometimes enjoy spring cleaning, Right? It's kind of nice to take a look at stuff that's kind of been sitting in a closet or sitting in a certain place and kind of thinking through, do I need this still? Do I want this? Is this still worth what I, what I do? Or should I get rid of it and replace it? On my to-do list, uh, my wife's out of town for work for several days this next weekend. One of my to-do lists that I want to get done before she gets back is we have a shed in the backyard, and I want to take everything out and get it all set up for summer, right? Make sure the lawnmower is going, get everything out and make sure it's set up. One of the, the things as I was reading this week, I just happened across an article that was a suggestion for spring cleaning things, and they, they talked about items that, that are often old around our houses that we don't even realize, but that we often should replace a lot more than we do. And I read this and I was convicted, not really convicted, all right, but, but I thought a few of them were interesting things that often sit around our houses that are old that we don't often think about replacing with something new. They said you should replace the sponge that you do your dishes with every couple weeks. I'm like, but if you have soap on it, it's always clean. So why does it need to be replaced? I don't understand. There's nothing wrong with this. Apparently, that's not logical thinking. Um, I should replace my sponges. Someone said you should replace your spices in your kitchen every six months. I'm like, all right, what spice company wrote this? No one replaces their spice company. Your sole spice rack? No, it needs a collection of years worth of spices in there to really be valuable. The one that really caught me that I had never thought about replacing was the scrubber that you use in your bathroom to clean your toilet, that you should replace it. I thought to myself, oh yeah, that's gross. I can't remember when that thing was bought, let alone clean. Uh, I know when it was used, like I, I use it to clean, but oh, that, that's true. And sometimes it, it's fun to think of what are these old things that we need to take out and replace with something new. Well, today, Jesus highlights something that is old, and it's not just something in your bathroom or in your kitchen closet. He he looks at this old system that was represented, and he talks about how he, in and of himself, is about to replace it himself with something brand new. 
And he does a very drastic action to, to highlight how this old system has failed and what the new thing that he is going to bring about will come with him by the culmination of this final week of Jesus's life. Well, if you have your Bibles this, this evening, I would encourage you to open them to the book of Mark chapter 11. The book of Mark chapter 11 your, uh, your text for tonight is also included in the handout that you received. This story takes place um, and is recorded for us both in Matthew and in Mark, basically the, the same story. So we're just going to be zeroing in on the text here in Mark chapter 11, um, starting in verses 12 and ultimately going through verse 25. This story has been said to be, by many, one of the most confusing stories of Jesus's life. It's gotten so much attention by some scholars that some have simply said, well, this couldn't have happened. This can't be true. Someone wrote this in and it somehow got into the Bible. But we believe that all of God's word is inspired and useful for us in our walk with God. And so we're going to jump in today to this story, which as we jump into chapter 11, verse 12, it actually begins on Monday morning. All right, Monday morning, just so you know. So this is after the triumphal entry, but before Jesus has cleansed the temple. So Monday morning, verse 12 says this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. See, we read this and we're like, man, what got on Jesus? Right? Like, what is going on here? Have you ever seen those, uh, those Snickers commercials where like they turn into something until someone hands them a Snickers bar and they like eat it and then they transform back to themselves. And it's like the tagline, you're not you when you're hungry eat a Snickers bar, right? Is Jesus just hangry here? Is he so hungry he's angry? Like what's going on with Jesus? Why does he walk up to this tree and curse it? Not only that, but, but it says here he walks up to a fig tree that would be in leaf, but he finds nothing but leaves. And then Mark adds this, for it was not the season for figs. Do you think Jesus as an adult man didn't know the time that the, one of the main crops of Israel actually produces? Jesus just ignorant of the fact that it was likely in the spring, March or April at that time and that the figs wouldn't have come out till June. No, Jesus isn't ignorant of this fact and actually thinking that he will get figs from this tree. So we have to think to ourselves, what is going on? Because this is so unlike so much of what Jesus does and what we see Jesus doing here in the New Testament. Well, there's a few different clues that help us understand what Jesus is doing here in this passage. And the first clue is even just how Mark structures this story in his book. So in Mark chapter 11, you have this, these three verses in chapters 11, verses 12 to 14. If you have your Bible open, the next five verses, verses 15 to 19, are Jesus cleansing the temple and then immediately after that, which we'll look at in a few moments, verse 20 is the next morning on Tuesday, they go back and walk by the fig tree again. They're back by this fig tree on Tuesday morning. And Mark uses several times throughout the book what is called a parenthetical structure or a bracket structure. And what this means is he at certain times puts an event, has another one take place in between, and then comes back to the same event. And whenever Mark does that, those two events are always to be read together, never separate. 
The most well-known instance of this that, that Mark does this is in Mark chapter 5. A, a jailer named Jairus comes up and says to Jesus, my daughter is dying. My daughter is dying. And Jesus goes on his way to this man Jairus who has shown that he has great faith that Jesus could heal a, a girl who is near her deathbed. And Jesus goes and he heads towards Jairus' home. On the way, it says the crowd is pushing in around him. This isn't the, there isn't an interstate highway. It's more traffic packed than even on a Monday morning commute here in Chicago. The people are closing in and a woman who had been suffering from internal bleeding for over a decade comes up and touches Jesus and he stops in the middle of his way to Jairus. And he stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, everyone. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, every, like, everyone's like, there's no personal space here. Jesus, what are you talking about? And Jesus goes, no, someone touched me and I felt power leave. And this woman comes forward and she says, it, it was me. And Jesus responds, as, he responds and compliments her on her faith in Jesus. They then, the report comes immediately after this that Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus says, that's okay, Jairus has faith. And he goes to Jairus' home where the daughter, he's like, oh no, she's not dead. And he actually raises her from the dead. Why? To show again that Jairus had faith. Both of those stories taken together show great examples of faith. And they're even more powerful when they're seen together. So we're going to take the fig tree and the story of the fig tree, but look at what happens in between with Jesus cleansing the temple. And so when we, when we looked at this story a few weeks ago, we saw the, this idea of Jesus cleansing the temple here. And it, it alluded back verses, um, in verse 17 to two strong references from the Old Testament, where they said, where Jesus rebuked them and said, my house shall be held, oh, excuse me, called a house of prayer for all the nations. And that's a quote from the book of Isaiah when, when the, the Old Testament was looking forward to when all people would have access to salvation before God. And Jesus is accusing the temple rulers of pushing people away from God by their rules and regulations and excluding people from salvation. Jesus is judging them and throwing that system out, looking towards the day when all people will be included. And he ends his statement to them. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he, he, uh, he's there as pulling from Jeremiah 7 and talking about their hypocrisy in their leadership over him. And we talked about one of the things that Jesus isn't just telling, hey, clean up what goes on here in the temple, but what Jesus is doing is saying, this is all gone. This is done and I'm going to replace it with something entirely new. And so what Jesus is doing here when he's cursing this fig tree is he's doing what is called a symbolic action that's often commonly seen by prophets throughout the scriptures. The prophets, when they were, were speaking of God doing something, they sometimes wouldn't just say what God was going to do. They would show it in powerful and demonstrative ways because like, if you're like me, your teacher can tell you something, you can read something, but then when you see a visual aid of what actually is happening, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Think of these as visual aids from God towards his people. We see these throughout the Old Testament. We see Jeremiah taking jars and smashing them on the ground. We see Ezekiel who has all sorts of different prophetic signs to him. We see Ezekiel baking certain bread. We see Ezekiel tied up with ropes. All of these things are visual aids to God's people of the message that the prophets were also bringing. 
And so Jesus here is, is, is having a symbolic action towards this fig tree. He's not just angry at this fig tree. He's not so hungry that he's disgusted. So he's like, I'm done with this tree. Get me a better one. The fig tree is actually a representation of Israel. And this isn't just new to Jesus. He's not making this up. This is seen throughout the Old Testament. A fig tree is often portrayed as a representation of Israel. One instance of this is in Hosea chapter 9, verses, verse 10. It says this, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season I saw your fathers. And this is just one instance of where Israel is compared to a fig tree throughout the Old Testament. And so the fig tree here in this story isn't just a fig tree getting cursed, but it's the whole system and and country of Israel itself and all that they have stood for over the years that Jesus is rejecting. Not only that, but the fig tree being withered was often seen, in fact, in the Old Testament as a sign of judgment on Israel itself. The same prophet Hosea in chapter two was looking forward to this day of judgment when Israel will be judged. And the prophet says this, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages, which my lover has given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. One scholar summarizes it this way. He says, the fig tree symbolizes Israel in Jesus's day and what happens to the tree, the terrible fate that inevitably awaited Jerusalem. See, Jesus is not being angry or irrational here. Jesus is communicating a powerfully deep truth through a visual metaphor for his disciples and for us to understand. And so Jesus curses this fig tree, may no one eat from you again. And his disciples, it says here, clearly heard what he said. Verse 20, we're back to Tuesday now. We're up to Tuesday. Verse 20 says this, as they passed by in the morning, we're now Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its very roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The fig tree is dead. It's dead. Not, not just the leaves fell off, not like something happened to it overnight and an animal came, but to make sure we understand the total significance of what's happened to this tree, that the author adds that it's dead to its roots. It's dead to its roots. A scholar writes, this barren fig tree represents the barrenness of temple Judaism that is unprepared to accept Jesus's reign. And this tree is barren because the Jerusalem is barren and they're not ready to accept their Messiah. And Jesus has rejected them. And Peter calls out, look at what this fig tree, it's withered just like you cursed it to do. And in verse 22, Jesus, it says this, and Jesus answered them. Jesus answered them. So Jesus has just made a powerful symbolic action of casting aside the old, right? This old system of temple Judaism, he's casting it aside and he's about to replace it with something new. And we know that because he's answering specifically this this shocking comment about the fig tree. And tonight as we're going to look here at Jesus's response to Peter, we're going to see three characteristics of this new thing that Jesus is bringing about himself. Three characteristics of what will replace the old and come into the new through Jesus Christ himself. So verse 22 says this, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, 
Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. The first characteristic of this new thing that Jesus is bringing about is that it's based on faith. The foundation of this new thing that Jesus is bringing is that it is based on faith in him. This mountain that Jesus was talking about isn't just some speculative mountain like a cool phrase like you can pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea. But they're likely on the side of the Mount of Olives headed towards Jerusalem. And from the Mount of Olives itself on a clear day, if you looked the opposite way from Jerusalem, you could look behind you and you could see the Dead Sea standing there. So Jesus is not just using some random things, but he's saying this mountain thrown into that sea if you only had faith to do so. See, faith has always been the establishment of one's relationship with God. And Jesus is affirming that in this new thing that he's going to bring about, it is based on our faith in God, not on anything else. See, the the religious leaders of the time seemed to have overemphasized the sacrificial system so much to the de-emphasis of faith with God. And Jesus is bringing about a new thing into the world and has brought about a new thing that's based entirely on faith. See, Christianity is not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus has already done for you. Being a Christian isn't based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus has already done for you. Its basis is in faith in the work and what Jesus has accomplished, not just here, but in this final week of his life, ultimately in his death and his resurrection and the significance that that can have on our lives. Sometimes we struggle with this idea of faith and works. And if we struggle with it now, we don't have to feel bad because in the Bible, they struggled with it. And Paul and James had arguments about faith and works and the interplay of these two and how they actually worked together. Sometimes I like to to ask people, are works important in salvation? You always feel in a hard place there because you're like, well, if I say yes, then I sound like works earn salvation. But if I say no, it makes it sound like Christians can live however they want to. And that's not necessarily the right way either, right? And sometimes it's this tension that we need to manage. And one of the greatest texts on how salvation is from faith in Ephesians chapter 2 It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one could boast. And then right after that, for you are God's workmanship created for good works, which Jesus had planned in advance for you. We're like, wait, what? Works? Right after it talks about faith. Interesting. Interesting. See, the problem comes, I think, in our lives when we overemphasize one to the exclusion of the other. We overemphasize one of these things to the exclusion of the other and we find ourselves away from God's word. See, our faith is based on works, but it, excuse me, no, our faith is based on Jesus. Let me rewind that. Whoop, I'm sorry. Our faith is based on Jesus and results in good works. But sometimes we place our faith, we place just faith in Jesus and nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. You can live however you want. I was talking to someone recently who grew up at a church and she said, it seemed like all that mattered at my church was if you got baptized, you were in and nothing else mattered. Like there wasn't a lot of talk about obedience, about maturity, anything like that. It was like, hey, if you were baptized, you're in the club, you're good, don't worry about anything else. And it was this, this overemphasis on just have faith with God and nothing else at all matters. 
And when we go that way, we lose out on so much of a picture of how we should live this life and what God wants to do in and through the life of a Christian. But on the other side, you you can so overemphasize works that you miss out on faith as the basis for what we should be doing to begin with. Right? And ultimately, why are we saved? Well, because we do a lot of good stuff for others. We go to church, we give to the poor, and all those things are fine and good, but they're not saving of your life. And they don't lead to Christ. It's only a Christian who is based on what Jesus has done, not on what you have done. I think in, in our day, there's, there's a lot of controversy and talk amongst people over this issue of social justice in our world. And so often the responses that I see in the church swing way too far one way or the other, right? This idea of social justice, meaning should Christians be about doing good things in our world? And some people be like, nope, doesn't matter. All that matters is you have your own individual relationship with God and nothing else matters besides that. And I'm like, really? Have you read the rest of the Bible? Like, Jesus seems to say a lot about how we should treat other people. Like, well, I don't like him. Well, he says, love your enemy. So sorry, you're done. Like, you can't get around that. Like, Jesus says a lot about that. But on the other side, we, we can so overemphasize getting involved in a world and doing stuff that church just become, can become a social club where we get together to do activities. And we don't even start to open our Bibles or dwell on faith or the saving work of what Jesus has done for us. But we need to fight against both those sides and bring them to the middle. That our our faith is the foundation of who we are as Christians, but it leads us to live in a way of good works in our world. This new thing that Jesus has for us is based on faith. He says this in verse 24, he continues. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. It will be yours. The second characteristic of the new thing that Jesus is bringing for us is that it is fueled by prayer. It is fueled by prayer. And as I was thinking of of this, this idea of keeping faith and works in balance, oftentimes prayer is one of the key ways that we can do this in our own life that it helps us keep that proper perspective, that proper dependence and attitude towards God. One of the things that struck out to me so much, I read through the Gospels this last year, and one of the things that stuck out to me so much as I read again through the Gospels was if you've read it before, have you ever noticed how much Jesus prays? Have have you ever noticed that? Like, it's like, oh, and Jesus has a big crowd and he's like, get away from me, I gotta go pray. And you're like, Jesus, you got all these people. Do some miracles, save some people, preach the, preach the gospel. And Jesus, I, I, now's my time to pray. Right? Jesus, right before, we're, we're going to see in a few nights, like right before even said, I, I need to go pray. I need to get aside to pray. Most of what Jesus done for us as Christians isn't like do what Jesus did, right? Like don't go and try and walk across Lake Michigan to the other side. That's not going to work out well for you, right? It's, it's not meant to be like Jesus did this, so should you. But I've often struck, if Jesus needed so much prayer in his life, why do we think we would need any less than that? If Jesus needed so much prayer, why do I think I could get by with a quick prayer before I head out the door in the morning? 
Now, there's nothing wrong with just a quick prayer once in a while, but if that's the sustenance of my reliance on God, I think it says something about my heart and that I'm not really relying on God. I'm not fueling this faith through this ongoing relationship with God as seen in prayer. I tell you, whatever you ask, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. One scholar, as he was um, writing in his commentary on this, Dr. David Garland, talked about lessons that he's learned in his life for prayer. And I thought they were so good. I just pulled three of these lessons that he's learned for us to think about tonight as he's reflected on this passage in prayer in out, excuse me, throughout the Gospels. The first thing that he says in how we should pray is that we should pray receptively. How should we pray? He says, well, well Christians, we should pray receptively. And what, 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 I, what I mean by that is praying receptively is prayer is ultimately about lining our will up with God's, not getting stuff, right? Prayer is about lining our life, our actions, our desires, our motives, our behaviors up with God's, not about God, I need this, God, I want this, God, give this to me. See, so often we pray the other way, right? With, hey, God, I really want this job. Make it happen. God, I really want to pass all my classes this semester. Make it happen. God, this is really what I want. This is what I need. This is, let me tell you about my life. And God's over there like, yeah, I don't think that's the purpose of prayer. I don't think that's what I had called for your life. See, when we pray, it's a receptive prayer, meaning that when we pray to God, we're asking not just for things, but we're, we're praying in such a way that we're willing to change our attitudes and our obedience to however he would guide us. Obviously, always true to his word. That we're open to being receptive to changing our hearts, to changing our lives to be more in line with him. See, as, as sometimes scholars debate, well, does prayer actually change God's mind? And there's kind of philosophic, philosophical debates over it. But the thing that prayer really changes should be us. The thing that prayer really should change is our own hearts. If we pray receptively, seeking to line our will up with God's will. The second, um, the second way we should pray is we should pray confidently. We should pray and we should approach God confidently before him. Uh, we, we as a staff, which I, I love working at this church for so many reasons, and one of the reasons I think that I love working here so much is, is we've, God has blessed this place with a great staff, from pastors, directors, to our assistants, to our facilities, all across the board. And on Monday this last week, we were sitting in a, in a room, right? we were having a conversation actually about prayer and how we can grow together in our prayer lives. And this idea of praying confidently came up um, amongst the staff, and we had just an amazing discussion about it this week. And one of the, the things that came up, which I was so challenged by in my own life, that we asked ourselves as a staff this week is, do, when we pray, do we sometimes like give God an out all the time, right? Like we pray things and we're like, well, maybe if you want God, <laughs> right? Like, God, would you do this if you really want to? And sometimes we, we pray with such lack of confidence in who God is and what he says he will do that we are actually giving God an out and not really expecting him to do anything. One of our staff members said that, that if, if, if one of her kids came to her and said, Mom, can I have lunch if it be your will? She would be like, I failed as a parent. 
right? If my kid doesn't know that I want to feed them lunch, then I've somehow failed, right? Because that's part of what it means to be a parent is you provide the right things for your child. And the, the idea is if we go before God and we say, God, give me wisdom if you have the time. God, give me patience. Well, maybe if you can get around to it. No, God is our loving father and he wants to give us every good thing. And we can approach the throne of God's with confidence. It doesn't mean, God, give me the raise. He's not gonna always say yes to that. But when you ask things in line with his will, we can approach confidently. So do you need wisdom tonight? Do you need patience? Do you need more discipline in your life. What do you need? If you're a child of God, approach God with confidence. Our new relationship with him, this new thing is fueled by prayer. The third way that he says we should pray, which I love, is we should pray expectantly. That we need to learn to pray expectantly. So when we pray, we need to actually expect that God's going to answer our prayers. We, we see our lack of expectancy in prayer so often because our prayers are often either too selfish or too small. Our prayers are often way too selfish. Our prayer life is often focused a lot more on us than anywhere you'll ever read about a prayer in the Bible being focused on one person. And our prayers are often too small. We're not asking for bold things. We're just asking for tiny little things. We're not asking God to do the things that maybe he would even want to do in our world because we're not praying expecting that God would answer. And so how's your prayer life tonight? Pastor Larry challenged us if you were this morning with the exact same question, how are we before God in prayer? Because is, if your life is as Jesus would want it to be in this new thing, it's fueled by prayer. This ongoing relationship with your heavenly father who loves you and wants to give you all these good things. If you would just come before him and ask with confidence that he would give it to you. A new relationship is fueled by prayer. Verse 25, Jesus says this, the last verse. And whenever you stand praying... Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The third characteristic of the new thing is that it's persistent in forgiveness. Persistent in forgiveness. This new thing that Jesus is bringing about is persistent in forgiving others. When we stand to pray, if there's any prickling in our heart, if there's any inclination of wrongdoing towards others, the first action that Jesus calls to us is to forgive other people. See, if prayer is ultimately about aligning our will to God's, then if we're not forgiving others, it's impossible for our will to actually be aligned to God's will. Right? If God's, God's heart is about forgiveness, and if we are refusing to forgive, then it's impossible for our lives to line up to what God would have. And so when we pray, we need to be reminded of our need to forgive and to forgive quickly and to forgive all the people who have wronged everything against us. See, forgiveness is a key characteristic of the new life found in Jesus. When you think of many of the things that Jesus talked about, forgiveness often can rise towards the top. In what's called the Lord's Prayer, when he taught his disciples how to pray. 
I learned at the old King James Version, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. You ever stop to think that? We're asking God to forgive us to the extent that we forgive others. Forgive us as we have to the extent that we're willing to forgive others. Jesus told parables on forgiveness. His disciples were like, how many times? And Jesus said these innumerable times, the largest amount possible and beyond then. And yes, there is a place when wrongdoing has happened for a believer to go and rebuke a brother. But the large emphasis on the New Testament is this ability to forgive others when you have been wronged. Look again at verse 25. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. I don't see a lot of exceptions there. Anything against anyone. Well, it was a big thing, okay? It was against someone I don't like, okay? Anything against anyone is what Jesus has called us to forgive. The other, the other day, I actually think it was yesterday, my wife is, uh, is watching through one of her favorite childhood TV shows. Um, and so we sat down and had dinner and watched the show together. It's uh, the classic 80s and I think early 90s sitcom Full House. All right, you, remember, you remember Full House, the, the great show that ran for several seasons on TV. And the episode that we just happened to watch um, last night was, was called Tanner vs. Gibbler. Tanner vs. Gibbler, which I think we have a screenshot from it. And the, the, the episode focused around, by the way, I love the hair. I love the hair in all the episodes. They, the hair, the style, the fashion, it's awesome. Um, is, is one of the main characters, DJ, who's the girl on the left, and her best friend, Kimmy, get into a fight. DJ throws a birthday party for Kimmy. They're in sixth grade. Kimmy brings two junior high friends, and all the sixth graders are impressed that she has junior high friends who came to the party. The junior high girls want to invite boys over to the house. DJ says, no, I don't want that. Kimmy goes up and she actually leaves her own birthday party from DJ's house and she leaves with these cooler girls and leaves DJ and the rest of her other friends behind and leaves. The, the, she calls and I guess bad names are exchanged at school and of course they're, they're both angry and upset with each other. And then DJ's upstairs, the phone rings, her sister's like, oh, it's Kimmy. She goes, okay, she takes the phone and she hangs it right back up and walks away. And I was like, wow, what's going on? And so her family talks to her and helps her realize, hey, you, you, gotta, you just gotta learn to, to ask for forgiveness, to forgive her. Yeah, that it was wrong what she did. That's harsh, but you can forgive her. And so the, she goes downstairs because Kimmy lives next door and came over to her house. And DJ went downstairs and she goes, hi. Kimmy awkwardly looks at her and says, hi. There's kind of like this long pause. And DJ goes, well, aren't you going to say anything? Kimmy goes, what do you mean? DJ goes, well, aren't you here to ask for an apology? To apologize? And, and Kimmy goes, I was here to ask for all my gifts that I left behind. <laughs> and they get another squabble of a fight, which eventually, because it's a good family show, right? It, it ends with, they kind of reconcile. And they're like, if we're best friends, how can we be in a fight like this? We need to make up and forgive one another. And they had this, this moment of forgiveness and reconciliation. But I love the, this talk that, that the parents have with DJ. It's like, she's like, I don't want to forgive. What she did was mean to me. And other people have harassed me because of what she's done. And I realized that the same excuses that this TV show is making for a sixth grade girl are the same excuses that we often make in our lives. The same excuses that she was making were the same excuses that we often talk about as well. So I think we all 
need to practice forgiveness in our lives. I don't know about you. I don't, maybe you think because I'm a pastor, it's like it's easy. I get this like forgiveness gene down. I don't. I don't. And there's been times, most of the time as a pastor, you're kind of upfront and you're leading things. And the large majority of the time, people are very complimentary. But there's sometimes, believe it or not, yes, even at this church, that people will say things about you and to you that aren't exactly done in Christian love. And I wish I could say to my pastor's heart, I'm quick to love and to forgive and to accept and to embrace. But what I really want to be is like, yeah, no. I don't want to go talk to that person. Do you know what they said about me? I don't want to go love that person. Do you know what they told someone else that I did, which wasn't true? See, when I think of forgiving others, what I have to remind myself of a lot is two things. I have to remind myself that I don't deserve forgiveness to begin with in the first place. Right? If we forgave others like we deserve to be forgiven, if that's how God treated us, God would never forgive us. We don't deserve to be forgiven by God. And so can we forgive other people who don't deserve to be forgiven? Well, yes, we can. We can, and we should. Not only that, but I have to remind myself that, that other people don't deserve, but that I myself need to be asking for forgiveness as well. Because I need to remind myself that I would be naive to think that I've never wronged someone else. That I've never said something that's offended. That I've never hurt. That I've never said something that someone else thought, man, that was really mean. He shouldn't have said that about me. And I need to realize that if I've done that to someone else, what would I want from them? I would want them to forgive me. And if that's what I would want from them, that's what I should offer in return, is forgiveness. Do you need to forgive Someone tonight? Do you need to forgive someone? Someone in your life, maybe right now, that you're interacting with? Maybe someone who you haven't talked to in a long time, and there's a reason you haven't talked to them, because you've been avoiding them. Forgiveness is a characteristic of this new thing that Jesus is bringing about in our hearts and our lives. It's not easy, it's a challenge, but this new thing that God has called us to is based on faith in Jesus Christ. It's fueled by this relationship we have with God through prayer. And it's persistent in forgiving others around us. God, we thank you that we can forgive others because you have forgiven us. God, and we will never in this lifetime be able to comprehend what it meant that you have paid for and forgiven our sin. So as our world thinks of this new thing that we know as following Jesus of Christianity, may this idea of forgiveness be one of the things that flows into their minds when they think about who Christians are, when they think about who people at Moody Church are, that they're loving and that they're quick to forgive those who have wronged them. God, would you stir our hearts not just to think about these things, but to move in works and in action and in deed as well. And may we truly forgive those in our lives that we need to forgive. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.